Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a special show with you with not one, but two guests. They're coming to us from one of the most respected real estate research shops in the world, founded in 1985 with over 40 analysts covering over 100 real estate companies. Their buy recs have done over 20% annually since 1993, which is double all the companies in our universe and 1% for their sales. If you're a real estate REIT investor, this episode is for you. So we are thrilled to welcome both the CEO and the president of Green Street Advisors, Craig Leupold and Jim Sullivan. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thank thanks you. for having us. So before we dive into all things real estate REIT related, let, let's start with you two guys. Maybe give us a couple minute intro on your backgrounds, how you guys joined or started Green Street, and we'd love to hear from both of you. Sure. Uh, this this is Craig Leopold. Uh, I'm the CEO of Green Street. I have been involved in the commercial real estate industry for uh, for over 30 years, starting out my career as a commercial real estate banker, funding development loans in Southern California primarily, as well as Arizona and Northern California. And from there, uh, went back to, to business school at Columbia Business School. And uh, when I was coming out uh, looking for my Next opportunity within commercial real estate, I landed at a uh, advisory and consulting firm called Kenneth Leventhal and Company that was located in Newport Beach, California. But as part of my business school training in real estate, I was exposed to a firm called Green Street Advisors, and Green Street had worked on an IPO engagement with Kimco Property Company, and, and Kimco was an IPO that came out in November of 1991. And it really set the stage for what we'll call sort of the new wave of REITs. And from that moment on, we saw a tremendous number of companies come to the public market. And as part of a business school case, I was working on the Kimco offering. And because Green Street had done some uh, some work with Kimco, that's how I got to become familiar with Green Street. And when I relocated here to, to Newport Beach, California at a business school, I was first working at Kenneth Leventhal and Company. I was working on some REIT formation engagements. And Mike Kirby, the one of the co-founders of Green Street, reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in uh, coming on board and, and joining them. And that's what I did. So uh, I've joined Green Street in 1993. So coming up on my uh, 25th year anniversary here. So my time here at Green Street has spent doing a variety of things. Uh, I was the first uh, first analyst to have sector coverage covering the residential sector here at Green Street, which includes apartments and manufactured housing and student housing companies. And then uh, in uh, 2007, became the president of Green Street and uh, now serve as the CEO. So I'll, I'll uh, pass it over to Jim and let him uh, give you a little bit of his background. Thanks, Craig. Jim Sullivan, and I'm president of the advisory and consulting group at Green Street. I've been with Green Street now for 24 years. For 20 of my 24 years, I was on the research side of our shop. So I was our 
analysts leading our coverage of the REITs that specialized in malls and healthcare and office and industrial, self-storage, manufactured housing, you name it. I did that for many years. For four years, 2010 through 2014, I was the head of our North American research group. So that was uh, 30 analysts uh, covering different markets around North America. And then four years ago, took over the leadership of our advisory and consulting group, which is a group that helps investors and owners of real estate answer challenging questions. For example, we're a private real estate company. Should we go public? We're a giant retailer that owns a lot of real estate. What should we do with it? How do we monetize the value of that? Uh, Macy's and McDonald's are two examples of retailers that we've worked with trying to answer those questions. We work with foreign investors who are looking to invest their capital in the United States. Where should we invest, New York or Los Angeles? If we're gonna invest in Los Angeles, should we be buying uh, apartment buildings or office buildings or warehouse properties today? So that's what we do in the advisory group. And uh, for a few years prior to getting to Green Street, I, I learned the real estate business as a real estate construction lender and as an investment banker. Very cool, guys. Thank you for that. Why don't we get started with just kind of the the general Green Street approach to real estate analysis and valuation in general? I'm happy to kick that to to Craig. Maybe let you start, uh, and Jim, feel free to chime in as well. But but why don't you tell us a little bit about your framework for how you guys think about real estate in general and, and valuation too? Sure, I'm happy to do so. I think you know first, I think it's important to state that uh, you know Green Street's an independent firm, so meaning we're not affiliated with any investment banking or real estate brokerage activity. So I think that allows us to provide trusted insights and unbiased advice to our clients. So you know simply state our goals to enable our clients to make the best capital allocation decisions possible, whether that be within the public real estate market or the private real estate market. You know we have three primary product offerings: our REIT. Research, which covers the publicly traded real estate companies, real estate investment trusts, and includes coverage of over 80 companies, as you stated in your intro, Meb. And then uh, our real estate analytics product line, which provides insight and advice on navigating the private real estate markets. And there we cover over 50 markets throughout the U.S. across uh, all the major property sectors. And then as Jim just hit on, we have our advisory and consulting group, which does more customized solutions or provides more customized solutions to clients on a bespoke engagement basis. So when Green Street was founded just over 30 years ago, our focus was on the public real estate market and covering the publicly traded real estate investment trusts. And Green Street's approach at that point was very different from what was taking place in the market. Green Street's approach was, let's go out and understand the value of the properties that these companies own. Let's let's do a valuation from a ground up standpoint and know what their portfolios are worth and then see what kind of premiums or discounts to that underlying real estate value the companies are trading at. So we built a model around understanding or you know what we'll call a net asset value or NAV based model where we had a valuation for the portfolios of every company in our coverage universe and could understand how they were priced relative to that underlying real estate value to look for opportunities where a company was overpriced or underpriced relative to that real estate and whether or not that was justified based upon maybe some uh, you know, balance sheet issues or whether that was justified based on above or below market overhead and or GNA costs 
whether the company was overexposed to variable rate debt, whether management did a good job in terms of capital allocation. Those types of things were, we would consider to think what companies should trade at a premium to net asset value and what companies should trade at a discount. That's basically the basic Green Street model when it comes to evaluating real estate investment trusts. Over the years, because we had to understand how each of these companies' portfolios were valued, we had to really understand the, the private market. We had to understand how apartments in Atlanta were priced relative to, say, industrial buildings in Northern California. And so over the years, we've collected a tremendous amount of data to understand these various markets. And that was really the advent of our real estate analytics product line, which was repackaging much of this data and research that we've done over the years to better understand and help those active in the private market value their real estate portfolios, think about where they'd want to allocate capital. And so that's the basic framework of, uh, of Green Street. And so what's, what's kind of the way the world looks right now? I mean, I'll kind of leave it open-ended for you, but you know, as you kind of roll into 2018, I know Barron's had a great interview with your founder we can link to in the show notes as well. That was a lot of fun. But what's the kind of outlook for 2018 and beyond? What, what, what are your broad overview? What are you guys kind of seeing in the, uh, in the real estate world? Taking a step back, I think there, you know, when we look at real estate fundamentals, and, and when, what I mean by that is thinking about rents and occupancies and where they're going, and then as well as valuation. So you know, with the exception of retail real estate, most property sectors are seeing increasing rents and occupancies. But fundamentals have slowly moved from what I'd call great down to good to now, I would say, are sort of okay. Uh, if you look at our forecast for intermediate term net operating income growth, meaning the cash flow that, that a portfolio is throwing off, over the next four years, we're, we're forecasting roughly 2.5% growth across the various property sectors with industrial property, the industrial property sector leading the way and retail being the laggard. Um, you know, coming out of the global financial crisis, real estate saw limited additions to new supply, which set the stage for strong rent and occupancy gains. Today, however, we're seeing new supply coming into most markets across most of the property sectors, which is really sort of at a level now where it's meeting the demand of the marketplace. And that's why we see rent growth continuing to slow, positive rent growth, but rent growth slowing. From a property value standpoint, after several years of very heady property price appreciation, we've now more recently seen price appreciation stall out and for the most part see property prices as, as uh, drifting sideways, if you will. So, and, and again, we're focused on commercial properties, not residential. You know, residential would be probably a different story. But from a commercial property standpoint, we see values drifting sideways, you know, over the next 12 months or so. Okay. And when, when you say kind of the return expectations, is it sort of the mid single digits for expectations in general as far as total return on on some of these investments? Is it higher? Is it lower? What's kind of the ballpark? Sure. So we, you know, we look at things on an unlevered return basis. You know, don't think it's appropriate to look at things on, on a levered basis as, you know, then you have to, to take a deeper dive into understanding the capital structure of, of a company or, or a particular asset. But across the, across the sectors, we see real estate price today to deliver unleveraged returns of about 6% or in the very low 6% range. When we think about that relative to other capital market alternatives, 
we're fairly comfortable with where real estate is priced today. And, and again, I'm, this is focused on the private market more so than the public market. And, and I'll get into why I say that in a second. But if you look at unlevered returns in the low 6% range relative to BAA corporate bond, say, which we think is a, is a reasonable benchmark to think about when understanding how real estate stacks up relative to other capital market alternatives, Historically, REITs have been priced to deliver an unlevered return of about 150 basis points higher than the BAA corporate bond rate. Today, we see that spread at a little over 150 basis points. So that's where, why we say we see private market real estate is sort of fairly priced today. You know, it's right kind of in line with the historical average uh, risk premium that's been uh, been afforded real estate. In the public market, there's a large difference, and that is. In the public market, we are seeing the real estate investment trust in our coverage universe now trading at roughly an 11% discount to their unleveraged asset value. So there's a difference going on here in the public market versus the private market. And that being, you know, real estate is cheaper for anybody looking to invest in it by buying a REIT security versus buying the underlying asset that those REITs own. And I think I saw, you know, I've read a lot of y'all's research. I think I saw at some place where you mentioned your belief, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that public tends to lead private. And so is this a scenario where this sort of divergence resolves by, you know, in general, you think private market values need to come down or what's what's kind of your kind of general thoughts there? That's a great question. I'm gonna let Jim touch on that in, in a second, but I say, you know, there's two ways for that gap to change, right? One would be for REIT prices to to rally and the gap get closed by real estate pricing in the public market increasing, or it could be closed by real estate pricing in the private market decreasing. The public market has historically been a pretty good predictor of future private market real estate returns, but it's not a perfect predictor. So Jim, I'll kind of let you chime in there too, if you want, as well is, you know, one of the things that as we're talking about, especially real estate investing and, and public REITs, and you guys have touched on this briefly already, is that it's not you know a uniform space. You have everything from malls and, and office to lodging and storage and student and, and manufactured homes, which I think is a, fa- a fancy way of saying trailer parks at this point. But uh, maybe talk to me a little bit about, again, the, the signals from the public market, any more kind of uniformity in valuations, because a bunch of listeners are probably saying, okay, if they're talking about this net asset value approach, why not just buy the cheapest stuff? But in some cases, these sectors have a premium or, or discount for a reason. So I'll let you get, there's a couple things in there, but I'll let you uh, fire away when you're, when you're ready. Sure. This is Jim. Yeah. You make a very good point that REITs tend to specialize by property type, which allows investors to then aggregate portfolios that consist of the property types that they're most optimistic about and, or they think are priced most attractively. So you do have REITs that specialize in apartments, uh, REITs that specialize in office, uh, REITs that specialize in malls, uh, REITs that specialize in warehouse properties. And then you have a lot of niche property types that are represented in the REIT market as well. Uh, self-storage, student housing, senior housing as some examples. When an investor invests in a REIT, uh, basically they're, they, they should be willing to pay fair market value for the real estate that the REIT owns. 
So Craig talked earlier about the concept of net asset value, which is calculated by marking to market the value of the assets that the REIT owns and then subtracting the liabilities. And um, when a REIT investor decides, what should I pay for this stock? What's the right price for this REIT? You start with, uh, well, what's the real estate worth? And then let's work from there. So um, I should be willing to pay fair market value for the real estate. These REITs are run by management teams that range in quality from pretty good to best in class. So I should be willing to pay something for the management team. And then an important distinction between the REIT market and the private real estate market is that with REITs, an investor gets liquidity. If you want to exit your position, you could do it this morning by hitting a couple of buttons or calling your, your representative who trades your REIT stocks. You can't do that in the private market. It takes uh, months to market a property, get it closed, get the cash in your wallet. So fair market value plus something for great management teams plus something for liquidity means that the average REIT over time should trade at a modest premium to its NAV. And in fact, that's what's happened over long periods of time. Uh, REITs on average have traded about have traded at about 102, 103% of NAV. In the market today, as you alluded to, we're seeing some very unusual signals. Uh, we are seeing sectors such as apartments and office and malls in particular trading at very sizable discounts to NAV. And by contrast, we're seeing, say, in the industrial sector, companies that own warehouse properties, those companies are trading at sizable premiums to NAV. So what are the signals that we're getting from the REIT market? Well, as concerned as a lot of people are about the mall business, REIT investors are saying it's even worse than that. Uh, you're going to have to entice me with a, a very low share price to get me to deploy my capital into the mall sector at this very uncertain time for retail. Uh, conversely, in the warehouse business, uh, e-commerce has been a huge benefit to the warehouse business, a huge detriment to the mall business. So in the industrial business, we see REITs trading at a premium uh, as REIT investors say, hey, as good as everybody knows the market conditions to be for the owners of warehouse properties, we, the public market, think things a year from now are going to be even better than those expectations. So we'll pay a premium for the REITs that specialize in warehouse ownership. So some very interesting signals. Uh, things are not in alignment, and I think that creates some real opportunity for nimble investors looking for uh, cheap opportunities to buy real estate and to do it through REITs as opposed to through buying buildings or investing in funds that go out and buy buildings right now. And I think that's a great jumping off point. Maybe you can expand upon it. We had a, you know, I'd asked my Twitter followers for a few questions. And one of them was kind of along those lines. It says, you know, are, are strip retail REITs values or value traps and dittos, they said for apartment REITs, basically, are some of these areas that you mentioned, whether it's mall or office, etc, you know, with the with the big discounts, is that a opportunity? Or is that more of like a value trap? And, and I know you guys have written about some of the huge kind of macro forces at play, whether it's, you know, that Amazon-ing of everything or whether it's WeWork, you know, playing out. Maybe talk a little bit about if you think some of these sector, subsector industry discounts and premiums are warranted or whether that's actually an opportunity uh, as well. 
Yeah, I think it's it's very situational. It depends on the property type that you're talking about. The influences on the apartment sector are going to be different than they are different than they are in the office sector, which will be different than they are in the mall sector. Uh, and I think there's ge- geographic considerations as well. When you talk about real estate, real estate in a lot of respects is a very local business. So what's happening in Seattle might be different than what's happening in Los Angeles versus Austin, Texas. So it does require a lot of consideration to the macro, a lot of consideration to the micro when it comes to different geographies. So a lot of different considerations depending on the property type and where the properties are located. But what I would say is that in the mall sector, the extraordinary pessimism as it relates to Amazon taking over the world, retailers closing stores and department stores really struggling has caused the owners of high quality malls in the public space and the re- arena to trade at uh, unprecedented discounts to what the private market value of their real estate is. And we've at Green Street been proponents of investing in high quality mall REIT owners, Simon Property Group, General Growth, Mace Rich, uh, to name a couple. Is it a value trap? It could be. I would say that in real estate, demand considerations are really important. What's driving demand? Who's occupying the space? What rent are they willing to pay? are all important dynamics, but in real estate, commercial real estate, uh, excess new supply has always been the factor that has ended the commercial real estate party. And the good news there is that in most property types today, uh, excess new supply, uh, too much new construction is not much of a concern. Uh, We have certain pockets where that's the case, but in general, the reluctance of banks to make construction loans, the careful nature that developers have brought to this part of the cycle as opposed to previous real estate cycles has kept new supply in check in a way that uh, is a bit comforting to those who are worried about these prices being in fact a value trap. If too much new construction was an issue, I would be more concerned about the value trap sort of view than is the case in the current market. And by the way, you know, one of the interesting things that you mentioned earlier briefly, but I thought you could touch upon too, is you guys talked about in the public REIT space, you know, in general, you say, you say NAV is a starting point and there's other areas like franchise value. So obviously the management, corporate governance, overhead. But one thing that kind of surprised me was that you said historically, actually, you wanted to avoid companies that are highly levered and have kind of what you would call balance sheet risk. And to me, it, it was almost a little bit surprising where, you know, sometimes in romping, stomping bull markets, leverage, you know, ends up as, as being a, a tailwind. But maybe that's something that you guys found uh, not to be the case. Craig, you want to take a shot at that? Yeah, certainly if you had the perfect crystal ball, then by all means, if you knew the market, we we're going to see appreciating asset values, you'd want to be more levered. Unfortunately, we don't have perfect crystal balls and we have seen, you know, real estate, like many asset classes can be a cyclical business and you have periods where asset values are increasing. You have periods where asset values decline and it's, you know, at the, that time when real estate values are declining, you don't want to be the over levered company or you don't want to be the more highly levered company because, you know, what goes up does come down. And so what we have found is that, you know, if you look at those companies that employ higher degrees of leverage than those companies that deploy lower degrees of leverage, that over extended periods of time, 
that those more lowly levered companies have actually outperformed the more highly levered companies, which really says you're not being compensated as an equity investor for the incremental risk that you're taking with having a higher leveraged uh, capital structure. And so kind of as we're talking about crystal balls in general, what, what are some other market dynamics today that, that should be on the podcast listener investor radar? The question we get uh, most commonly is, hey, interest rates are on the rise and real estate's a capital intensive business. So rising interest rates has to be bad for real estate, correct? And the answer to that is complicated and it's a bit more challenging than, hey, rates are going up. That's bad for real estate. It's, um, it, it really comes down to, hey, let's think about why rates are going up. And if rates are going up because the economy is accelerating, and we have robust economic conditions, and that's why rates are going up, that's actually a pretty decent scenario for commercial real estate because in a robust economy, you have a lot of demand for real estate. Uh, the owners of real estate can achieve high occupancy levels and they can push their rents aggressively. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of property types right now, especially in industrial. So if interest rates are going up because the economy is doing really well, that can be a pretty good scenario for real estate. And it's one of the reasons why commercial real estate is often described as a bit of an inflation hedge. So if, if you're going to ask the question, hey, uh, interest rates and what's their effect on real estate going to be, I think you need to first take a stab at, well, why are interest rates going up? And uh, the evidence right now is that rates are rising because the economic growth of the economy is accelerating. And that's a, a pretty decent scenario for most types of commercial real estate. And so kind of as you're as you're talking about that macro environment and talking about REITs in general, whether and thinking about rising rates, potentially, there's also seems to be an increase in activism, you know, and, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about the capital markets, Jim, what's going on maybe with um, sort of anything going on with IPOs, M&A, privatization, all that good stuff, and, and whether you've seen a big influence or footprint on activism in general in the, in the REIT space. Yeah, the starting point for that is that we have a lot of REITs. So uh, we have nearly 200 REITs um, in a business that has an aggregate market cap of about a, a trillion dollars. So there's a pretty good argument that we have more REITs than we should, which always stokes the discussion of M&A, consolidation. And as we talked about earlier, with a number of high-quality companies that own great real estate trading at discounts, to their private market value, that raises the specter of privatization. Let's take these public companies private. So the underpinning for this uh, and your question on activism is when something trades at 80 cents on the dollar in the stock market, uh, that is uh, a mall company trading at a 20% discount to the private market value of its real estate, that's going to attract all sorts of interested capital sources, including activist investors. Now, the term activism, I think, in other industries, in some respects, has a dual meaning, right? I mean, some investors look at activists as uh, the saviors, the, the guys that wake up sleepy companies and extract shareholder value. And plenty of others in other industries than real estate would say, no, those guys are short-term opportunists and just trying to make a quick buck on the backs of the people who built the company and, and the long-term employees and the long-term shareholders. I can't speak to activism in other proper in, in other parts of um, 
the stock market, but I can speak to it when it comes to real estate. And we have seen an uptick in activism. Uh, the activists have been attracted to stocks trading cheaply and companies that arguably have not done uh, the right things for shareholders for long periods of time. So we've seen activists show up. We've seen them, I think, in general, uh, go after companies whose boards and management teams uh, perhaps weren't executing as well as they could. And I think we've seen some outcomes involving sales of companies and the privatization of companies that have been beneficial to shareholders. So uh, again, activism might be a dirty word in other industries, but I would say in the REIT business, the activists have by and large picked the appropriate targets and have in some cases effectuated change that has been very beneficial to the shareholders of those companies. Interesting. You know, we talk a lot about asset allocation and everything at, at Cambria and on this podcast and on the in the equity space in general, you know, we talk a lot about global investing as well. And maybe talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned that there's quite a bit of difference between Seattle and Los Angeles, but you know, what, what are you kind of guys seeing globally? What markets are, do you look at? What markets do you stay away? But, you know, instead of Seattle, Los Angeles, what's, what's kind of the difference between say Los Angeles and London or what, what's going on in some of the developed or emerging market REITs uh, globally as well? It's fascinating to see over the last 20 to 30 years, how global real estate capital has become and how quickly capital moves around the world, trying to find the best risk-adjusted returns. And one of the challenges to that is figuring out what risk-adjusted returns should be when you look at an office building in London versus an office building in New York, when you look at a, a major mall in Paris versus a major mall in Los Angeles. And so you know, part of the challenge for global capital is just getting your hands around, how do I even make those comparisons on a risk-adjusted basis? And I think one of the strengths that Green Street has is we have a, a London office with 20 professionals covering the real estate markets in the UK and across continental Europe. And it's really helped us hone in our ability to help investors answer that challenging question. Where can I deploy my capital today and get the best risk-adjusted returns? I think Green Street has a, a, a model for that that helps equate markets and, and help investors understand where they should be considering putting new capital. When we talk about the investors, uh, we work with investors from the Middle East. We work with investors uh, across the world, but the Middle East, Europe, Canada, Asia, and Australia that are trying to find the best places to put their money. And in some cases, that money and the redeployment of it is motivated by net worth preservation. I want to get my capital out of somewhere where uh, the political situation might be uncertain and get my capital into a real estate investment in a place that is more certain over time, a New York City office building, for example. Some of the capital is uh, traveling around the world trying to find the highest yield. And with the fixed income market being a place where yields are low, how can I deploy capital around the world into real estate and get better yield? So we, we work with a lot of investors that are more focused on yield than they are in net worth preservation. But the capital is moving around the world quickly. It kind of comes and goes. Uh, money coming out of China two years ago had a very big influence on gateway cities in the US. Today, that capital flow has shrunken considerably. So it's a dynamic market. The money comes and goes, but the common denominator is help me find the place where I can get the best 
risk-adjusted return when I deploy my capital from wherever it comes into real estate around the world. And and not to put you on the spot, but are there any particular countries you think are particularly attractive right now or not attractive? Are they pretty similar to kind of where the U.S. Uh, market is today? Yeah, I think it depends on, on what your motivation is. Is your motivation uh, total return? Is your motivation network preservation? Is your is your motivation to replace income that you used to get when oil was $100 a barrel versus $50 a barrel today? It really depends on your motivation. And then uh, a huge consideration is foreign exchange considerations and tax considerations. So if I take my money from point A and put it into point B, what sort of real estate dynamic and what sort of real estate consideration should I make? But then very importantly, can I get my money back? Can I get it back tax efficiently? That has a big motivation as well. So it's a complicated process, but you got to start with, hey, why are you considering taking your capital from this country and considering that country? And uh, then you layer on all those questions and the answers to which will, will lead you to the right place. Let's say that we have one of my friends in Los Angeles. He sold all of his Bitcoin, Ethereum. He's gonna, he wants to put a little money to work and his goal is total return. You know, And he, he can take a little risk. He can take a little volatility. Would you say most of the opportunity would be in, in some of these kind of other countries or is it US or would it be balanced or is it still also too kind of personalized question that, that it's even too hard to drill down to that kind of generic example. First off, hopefully he sold his Bitcoin maybe a couple months ago. <laughs> right. um, so he has more dollars to invest. But when we look at things sort of broadly, uh, and we're, we're and I'm, I'm going to sort of give you three larger regions, continental Europe, United Kingdom, and the United States, we see in the private market, continental Europe is being sort of the, the most attractively priced today in again in the private market the issue is then when you look through to the public market you see that the REITs that invest in continental Europe are actually trading at smaller discounts to net asset value and so if from a from a public market perspective we kind of see continental Europe United Kingdom and United States all priced about evenly today that's not always been the case but just coincidentally today it seems like the public market in terms of the premium or discount that they're ascribing to net asset value are accounting for the fact that in the private market continental europe offers better returns relative to their underlying uh, government bonds that's interesting you know it's 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 so interesting and in, in the kind of depth of it on the private versus public side is We've had a, a handful of people from the private equity kind of business on here and, and talking about ideas on, you know, kind of private equity versus public equities in the in traditional stock space. And it's fascinating to me because it, it waxes and wanes over time on on which area it tends to be where, where the money's sloshing around. So I, I would love to hold you guys here forever, but I got a couple other quick hits. And some of these questions are stuff that you guys may or may not have a strong opinion on, and that's totally okay. And so I'll just kind of volleyball them up and, and either Craig or Jim can take them. So I, I have a family farm that we've, my father grew up on a farm in, in Kansas and Nebraska. And so we have a wheat farm. So farming has always been an area that's been particularly close to my heart. And I know a lot of institutions do it on the private side. I'm curious as you guys' opinion as to why we haven't seen more 
farmland REITs in the United States. I mean, to my knowledge, I think there is only one. There might have been two, and I think one bought the other one. But what's your kind of thoughts there? Is it a bad structure for a REIT? Is it interesting, but there's just not that much development? What's what's the general overview of that tiny tiny corner of the the REIT space? So yeah, we have uh, we we had two farm REITs. We now have one farm REIT, and, and farmland REITs make uh, tremendous sense uh, when I think about the supply and demand dynamics of farmland versus other types of real estate. It's very appealing. The challenge to being a uh, public company is that uh, you have a couple of million dollars a year of expenses related to just being a public company, your filings with the SEC, your board of directors, et cetera. And so to be a public company, you need to get to a decent size pretty quickly or those public company costs become a real burden. And the challenge in the farm business is that it's hard to consolidate properties. It's hard to acquire aggressively. When you go to a lot of the places like the the scenario you described, you see a bit of resistance from sellers to selling to big public companies as opposed to selling to maybe uh, the family next door. So a farm REIT needs to get big quickly. That's challenging to do. And I think the concept makes tremendous sense, uh, but the execution has proven to be a bit challenging, at least so far. All right. Great business opportunity, listeners. When you all wants to start a bunch of farmland REITs, uh, I, I would certainly be an investor. One of the Twitter questions that you guys may or may not have an opinion on, but was asking about ETF ownership of REITs. And you know, as you've seen all this money flow into passive market cap weighted indexes, which in general, I think is a pretty great thing because they're lower cost. It also kind of blindly funnels money into into the market cap weighted indexes. And ETF ownership of REITs in general is about three times that of other stocks. And I don't know if that's just because the vanguardization of kind of sector or the way that REITs have recently sprung out to a new sector. Have you guys seen any distortions maybe that indexing or ETFs or mutual funds uh, maybe playing a role? Does that create opportunities? Is it something that's not that big of an influence? Any any general thoughts there? Well, uh, as, as you highlighted, uh, clearly passive investment strategies have won out in the REIT market in terms of where the flow of capital has been. You know, historically, you had you know, a large ownership within REITs that was comprised of REIT-dedicated mutual funds, and they had significant influence in the marketplace. Today, that influence rests more in the hands of the, you know, passive investment strategies, which we think actually has created some opportunities. As you highlighted at the beginning, you know, in introducing Green Street, we have found that historically, higher quality companies with lower leverage and owning what are lower yielding properties, at least initially, have generated outsized returns, meaning that the growth from those companies has has been more than sufficient to offset the lower initial yield. So that model has stood the test of time, generating returns where the spread between our buy bucket of stocks and our sell bucket of stocks is averaged about 24 percentage points per year. You couldn't necessarily replicate that in the real world because of trading costs and and other things. But the fact is, the model 
has proven out that higher quality companies, lower leverage companies, you know, lower initial yield properties have tended to outperform those companies that own something different than that. And I think what has happened now with, with passive investment strategies is that rising tide has sort of risen all boats or, and now we're actually seeing the, the tide going out. And I think as we see the tide go out and, and, you know, as I said earlier, we now see property prices more likely to drift sideways, you know, to the extent property prices were to decline, you know, those companies with lower leverage now have dry powder and have an opportunity to go out and acquire good real estate at discounted pricing. We're not calling for that at this point, but if and when that does happen, you know, those companies are well positioned to take advantage of it. And is, is that sort of, not to put words in your mouth, but, you know, we, we always kind of say near the end, we say, look, for the individual investors, financial advisors, even institutions, really, um, endowments, real money, sort of family offices, and you were to say, give one piece of advice for investing in real estate and REITs with a head nod to kind of the most common way people make stupid mistakes when they're, when they're investing in REITs. Is that kind of the general advice to, to be thoughtful about purchasing high quality, you know, real estate and with, with lower leverage? Or is, is there a kind of a different slant as well? I think maybe the first piece of advice, which would be, you know, and as, as any uh, investment manager would hopefully say, which is to first have a diversified portfolio. I certainly wouldn't advocate putting all your eggs in one basket. Yes, the, the mall REITs are trading at large discounts. But I wouldn't load up on mall REITs to the exclusion of other property sectors. So, you know, our approach at Green Street has been to be sector neutral. And what I mean by that within the, within the REIT space being property sector neutral. So being exposed to the various property sectors, but then picking the best companies that are most attractively priced within each of those sectors. And we think it's more times than not behooves you to own high quality companies, well-run, well-managed companies that, that generally have good, strong capital structures that will enable them to prosper in whether real estate prices are going up or real estate prices are going down. And, and to add to that on the private versus public, buying REITs or investing in uh, directly in real estate or investing in funds that uh, buy real estate, just a couple of considerations. Number one, you need to understand alignment of interest. So uh, are those who are managing your money, the executives at the REIT or the uh, private equity uh, firm that's managing your money on the direct side, uh, you, you need to make sure you have alignment of interest, that those parties go to work every day trying to make you richer. And in some structures, you have that. In the REIT structure, you definitely get that. In some private structures, you get that too. But just be wary there. And then the second point would be in a capital intensive industry like real estate that's attached to the cyclicality of our broader economy, liquidity matters. And so you really want to understand that, hey, when conditions change and I want to get my capital back, can I, can I do it efficiently? And can I do it um, in a way that, that gives me the capital back that I need to redeploy perhaps somewhere else. So alignment of interest and liquidity are two important considerations when you think about investing in REITs or investing in real estate through different structures. That alignment of interest is something we talk a lot about on the podcast and, and the concept of skin in the game. There's a, a Morningstar stat on, on mutual fund managers, for example, and it's something like 50 to 90%, depending on the style of mutual fund, have the manager has zero 
dollars invested in the fund. So I think the I think that that is one of the the most important things in all of investing, not just real estate, but you know having someone who's the fiduciary or and or uh, incentivized to win uh, along with you, guys. We're gonna start winding this down. Uh, our our final question that we always ask anyone in 2018, and we'll let Craig go first, and then Jim, as we say, and this doesn't necessarily apply to Green Street. This is more of a personal question and a fun one. Um, and, and you can conjure both good or bad, but think about what is the most memorable investment you've made in, in kind of your career. It could be Mickey Mantle baseball card. It could be buying a terrible stock that went down 100% CMGI and 99 or or whatever is the first thing that kind of pops into your head. Craig, we'll go with you first. What's been your most memorable investment or trade? Not to be too hokey, I guess my most memorable investment would be the investment of, of time and attention to my children. So I have uh, I have four children. And so that would be my most memorable investment. But if I'm thinking about from a financial standpoint, I would say my most memorable investment was buying Apple stock probably 15 years ago. I'm not normally one to speculate in individual stocks. I tend to have a very broad-based approach to investing, and I tend to seek out low-cost index funds more so than uh, than most, despite the fact that I, I, I run an investment advisory firm. Yeah, having said that, I did make a little foray in Apple stock at one point, like I said, 10, 15 years ago, and that actually proved to be pretty fruitful. Was that motivated by like the Peter Lynch style of investing in what you know? Did you just like the company? Was that was that kind of the origin of the purchase? Yeah, it was. It was as the you know the iPhone was first being introduced, and and I just and it just seemed so revolutionary to me. I remember sitting in a, in a friend's uh, backyard, and they had just bought this first iPhone and just flipping through it and, and, you know, just a totally different approach to things and thinking, boy, beyond just the technological advancements, just the style and design of the phone and how different it was thinking, what, what other areas could this be expanded into and could Apple take advantage of? So it was, it was a flyer. Uh, It was, it was, it was a small investment, but it, but it was one that, uh, that, that, served uh, served me quite well. You know, it's funny you say that because I can remember the exact moment I first saw one was sitting with a friend by the pool in Las Vegas and he showed me his and I was like, you know what? That's just, I don't really get it. I'm totally fine with my clamshell Motorola razor. I'm like, this is way better. It goes to show what, what, that's why I'm a quant. (laughs) So it's what, what little do I know, uh, when it comes to that, but it just reminded me, I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast because, but one of my most memorable, I just thinking about was, um, the same sort of thing is that as a kid, I always loved reading comic books and I remember buying Marvel stock. I think it was when they came out of bankruptcy, again, knew nothing, literally knew nothing, and uh, I remember it being one of the one of the better multi baggers I'd ever had, mainly because I liked Wolverine and the X Men. All right, Jim, you've had a little time to think about it. What uh, what what's what do you got for us? Yeah, I'll stick to real estate. And uh, when I was a young analyst at Green Street, we had a couple of couple of companies come public in the self storage industry. Uh, public storage was one of them, and. SureGuard was another, and uh, being the new guy at Green Street, I was tasked with figuring out the self-storage business, and I tried to do that the best I could. The challenge in self-storage is there wasn't any information out there. It was hard to get. It was inconsistent, but as I dug deeper and deeper into the self-storage industry, I thought, this is a fascinating business, and 
at the time in the mid 90s, about 2% of Americans were using self storage. Today, that number is approaching 10%. And for many, many years, Green Street had the had a point of view that self-storage is a very interesting real estate business that very few people pay attention to, but they should because the assets are fundamentally mispriced favorably to investors. And if you buy and hold these stocks, we think the outcome was going to be pretty good. So we were bulls on self-storage for a long period of time, and it was probably a period of close to 15 years where self-storage prices were just too low relative to what investors had to pay in more traditional real estate like office or apartments. And the world has come around to that point of view today, self-storage, which has had an extraordinarily great outcome for those that got in early, is priced fairly. There's a lot of capital in the market. The information in the industry is better known. But uh, I just remember going back a long way, and it's applicable to other places too, that if you If you can dig a little deeper and get an informational edge and translate that into a pricing conclusion that says, hey, this looks cheap, all things considered, uh, what an interesting way to find great investment opportunities. I love it. I love it. Craig, Jim, this has been so much fun. Where do people go if they want to follow y'all's research, sign up to be a client, you know, all that good stuff? Where's where's the best place to follow you guys? Best place to go would be to our website, which is Green and then st short for street.com so there's 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 a there's a longer version of the website title as well but that's that's the quickest and easiest one green st.com awesome craig jim thanks so much for taking the time today thanks man we appreciate it listeners we'll post all the links we talked about in the show notes uh any any of the publication that green street has publicly that they'll let us share we'll toss up there a lot of the other things we talked about today, you can always find at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you're loving the podcast, hating it, you can always leave us a review and uh, sign up to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Castro, Overcast, all those good apps. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.